0: Listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 14 I Care for My Kids. Today's Proverb comes from Edmund Burke. I'll read it twice. People will not look forward to posterity who never look backward to their ancestors. Once more, people will not look forward to posterity who never look backward to their ancestors. I chose this quote from Edmund Burke, on the occasion of Roger Scruton's recent passing. Roger Scruton, a hero of mine, departed this world for the next on January 12th, 2020. Scruton was a great reader and interpreter of Edmund Burke. Burke is tough. If you've read Reflections on the Revolution in France, which is Burke's seminal work, you know there's a lot to wade through. Long sentences, purple prose, unfamiliar vocabulary. The first time I read Burke, I didn't like him at all. I think I've probably taught Burke a dozen times now. But the first time I read Burke, I didn't like him at all. Between the first time and the second time I taught Burke's Reflections, about a year passed. And in that year, I read the article or the chapter on Burke's philosophy in the Leo Strauss edited uh, anthology on political philosophy. And returning to Burke, he made all the sense in the world. And I would say that... Ever since that second reading, Burke has made more and more sense to me. Although, in this episode, I'll do my best to treat the proverb as a proverb and not as just some kind of entry point into all of Burke's philosophy. So, the quote once more People will not look forward to posterity who never look backward to their ancestors. The first thing I'll note here is that there is a clear sequence. There's an order laid forth. Caring about posterity doesn't lead to caring about ancestors. It's the other way around. Caring about ancestors leads to caring for posterity. Now, by posterity, I take Burke to mean your children people you will know and care for. But by posterity, I also take him to mean your children's children, your great-grandchildren, people that you'll never meet, mere abstractions. And by ancestors, I take Burke to mean fathers and grandfathers, who you will know, but also great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers, ...and grandmothers. People you... ...never met... ...don't know personally... ...but whom... ...you're familiar with... ...in works of history. You know what your great-great-grandparents likely believed... ...because you're familiar with their era. So posterity means children and everyone going forward... ...and ancestors means parents and everyone going back now there's a sense in which uh, the quote obviously must be taken according to the sequence caring about ancestors first and then posterity next because we all meet our ancestors first we know our parents before we even conceive of posterity And I would say that our first impressions of our ancestors and parents and grandparents are almost always positive. We come to know our ancestors as our benefactors. When we're young, four, five, and six, uh, our parents are the ones that we depend upon for food and clothing, for playing and prayer. And our grandparents are even more generous benefactors than our parents. Grandparents are always bringing gifts. They offer real love, almost never tough love, at least not when we're young. And so growing up, it's easy to love our ancestors. They love us. They give us gifts. They make our lives easy. Now, this is not the impression of our ancestors that holds. There's, of course, a point around 15, 16, when you watch films about the 20th century, when you read a few history books, listen to a few history lessons, and you come to know the sins of your ancestors. You come to know the failures of your parents first. They treat you unjustly from time to time. They lose their tempers from time to time. And your grandparents and great-grandparents come from eras in which great things were accomplished, but terrible things were accomplished as well. And there's often a kind of ennui and embarrassment that sets in during your teenage years, whenever you're near older people who are in positions of authority over you. And you have real charges that you can lay against them. You look back, but in looking back you see not only their accomplishments, but their sins. And so they become harder to love. And there's a period of time where we quit looking back to our ancestors and start looking forward to our posterity instead. We start making promises about how we will raise our children. We recognize the real failures of our own parents from time to time. And I would say about 15 or 16 is the right age for young people to begin considering how they will raise their children not only seeing the good things but the bad things in the way they've been brought up and making plans it's hard to love our ancestors because they failed so often but the future is an easy thing to love I would say that all modern men, all men alive today, are either oriented toward their ancestors or oriented toward their posterity. That every man thinks of himself as fundamentally oriented towards the past or the future. And for the man who's oriented towards the past, the world is a somewhat dark place. even if you can gain much wisdom in looking to the past. The man who's oriented towards the past tends to not have a very sunny assessment of mankind. You might not be melancholic. You might not be depressed. But to be oriented towards the past is to be aware of great deal of evil this is not true of the man who's oriented towards the future in the future nothing bad has happened for the man who thinks of himself as fundamentally turned toward the future mankind's doing all right no one's sinned in the future no one's failed in the future no sin has been committed tomorrow The man who's oriented towards the future is thus often a kind of utopian. The man who's oriented towards the future speaks of how great it's going to be for my kids. I'm going to accomplish this, I'm going to accomplish that. The world that I hand them is going to be better than the world that I was handed. We're so much further along than our ancestors were. You have a pretty sunny assessment of mankind when you... The only mankind that you survey is sinless, faultless, and only full of possibility. Now, I'm going to suggest in this quote that looking backward to your ancestors is the key to actually looking forward to your posterity. And that while you might be full of good intentions for your children, they will all come to nothing... If your plans for your children are not born out of a careful examination of the past. Not the wholesale disregard of the past, but a careful assessment of the past. The only reason why you would look back to your ancestors is if you believed they had something to offer you. No sane person looks back to their ancestors merely to condemn them. If you believe that there's nothing worth praising in the past, you don't look backward. You only look forward. So to look back to your ancestors is to believe that they have something to offer you. Something good. Now, in addition to having something good to offer you, Your ancestors also have a lot of unpleasant advice. I've spoken about this once or twice on the show before. Old people almost never have good news for you. Because most of what they advise you to do is unpleasant, it's discipline. Now, this is not just true for someone my age, 38, who advises young people, 15 or 16, put away your phones, obey your parents, do more, around the house to help your mother. If you want to love your wife, you've got to start by loving your mom. If you want to be honest with your wife, you've got to be honest with your mother. It's not only true for people advising high school students. Every old person has some unpleasant piece of advice to give you. I'm 38, but the kind of advice that I get from people who are 55 and 60, it always tends towards asceticism. They're always talking about saving money. (laughs) what old people tell people my age. Set some money aside every month. Save 10%. And then they give you some statistical account of their own finances. If I'd been saving 10% from the time I was this age, I could have retired with thus and such a figure, and I'd be far better suited. Now, for somebody who's 38, I don't want to hear that. I finally entered my maturity... I finally have a good income. <laughs> After all those early years of scrimping and saving, burning through savings, barely making it. Two incomes. I don't want to be told to save my money. I want to buy fancy beer that costs $28 a bottle. I want to buy new shoes that are made in Europe. I don't want to save my money. But that's what old people tell people my age. Save your money. It's generally not advice that I give to my students. I tell them, spend wisely, and they don't want to hear that. My students don't want to hear the advice I give them. I'm not chastising my students in this way. The advice of older people is just never pleasant. It tends towards self-abnegation, denial, self-denial. That's what's tough about old people. You look to them, and then they tell you what you don't want to hear. Now, the nature of old people, ancestors as benefactors, that carries on even after you come to recognize the failures of your ancestors. This is always very galling. Because in the same way that your grandparents have more money than you do when you're five, there's a very good chance that they have more money than you when you're 35, too. Or 25, 15, what have you. We need the generosity of people who are older than we are. Older people can open doors for us that we cannot open for ourselves. Older people can get us access to things. They can vouch for us. They can write letters of recommendation. And so we're caught between accepting the generosity of these people that we're also somewhat bored by, embarrassed by. That's where a lot of people spend their maturity, thirties and forties. You need your parents more than you want to admit. And yet the advice they give is unpleasant. The other thing that old people do is they always tell you that you have it easy. (laughs) It never feels good. It's never what anybody wants to hear. You've got it easy. Life is good. Enjoy it while you can. I think we want to believe that we have it hard, and we want to enjoy life as much as possible. We want to have our cake and eat it, too. We want the best of both worlds. It's hard to feel sympathy for our ancestors because they have power over us. And there's a sense in which old people, we tell ourselves this, you had your chance. Why should I do what you say? You had your chance. Now it's my chance. Our ancestors came and saw and ordered the world and passed on from this world to the next. At the same time, we want to say you had your chance. We also want to be good parents. We want to look to our posterity. It's, of course, more shameful to not care for your children than to not care for your parents. And we brag about what good care we take of our children. We tend to not brag about what good care we take of our parents. Or we tend to not brag about how carefully we listen to our parents. I take care of my kids. That's something you brag. I listen to my dad. Nobody brags about that. It's unglamorous. We also want to believe that we can make it on our own. Having assessed all the failures of the past we are going to raise our children right we believe our children will be easy to love because we raise them right we will listen to our children we will care for them we will defend them we will stick up for them but i think that at the heart of this quote People will not look forward to posterity who never look backward to their ancestors. I think at the heart of this quote is an understanding that it is harder to love your children than you think it's going to be. And that loving your children requires strange investments in not just your ancestors, but strange investments in the past— If you want your children to listen to you, you've got to give them a model for it. If you want your children to respect you, you've got to show them how to do that. You've got to show respect for parents being a painful sort of thing. If you want your kids to respect you when it's painful, and if it's not when they're five, it will be when they're 15. We wanna believe our children will think us generous, lenient, creative, though we do not think the same of our parents. We want to believe that we can command respect without giving it. This is dangerous. Burke knows this is dangerous. We are all doing what we're shown. Monkey see, monkey do. That's the way that people are. So it feels good to tell yourself, my parents were idiots. I've got it figured out, though. My kids will live a good life. And to think of yourself as the curator and critic of your ancestors. But if you want your children to believe you, You must believe your parents. You are limited in what you can pass on to your children. You limit yourself by your ego. That which your children can inherit from you is entirely determined by how humble you are. There's also a sense in which looking to our ancestors is dull. Or it's at very least not as exciting as merely looking towards posterity. Now, I would suggest that the man who thinks he can survive by merely looking forward to posterity can make that work for a short time. I'm saying it doesn't work in the long run. Children, little children, are easy to love, but it gets harder. Eventually, they become free. And their love becomes far more voluntary. Let's compare these two men, then. The man who looks only to the future and the man who looks to the past out of consideration for his children. It's always going to be more exciting to look to the future, because the man who looks only to the future is involved in great works of revolution and destruction. Because the past is omnipresent. To move through the world is to move through an incarnate past. That's what creation is, an incarnate past. When we despise the past, we tend to truncate it and limit it down to a small number of things and treat those small number of things as the past. But the past is everywhere. Far more of the good things in our life come from the deep past than we want to admit. And yet, for the man who's oriented towards the future, there's an incredible excitement at cutting yourself off from the past. Because it involves destruction. It involves perpetual revolution. You will never be done throwing off the past. And thus, the man oriented towards the future is always involved in a continual revolution. Incompletable But there's something dazzling about it. There's something horribly exciting about it. On that point, I want to read a quote from Roger Scruton about what conservatism is. And when Scruton uses the word conservatism, it's a shorthand way of saying, looking backward to our ancestors. Here's the quote. Conservatism starts from a sentiment that good things are easily destroyed, but not easily created. This is especially true of the good things that come to us as collective assets, peace, freedom, law, civility, public spirit, the security of property, and family life, in all of which we depend on the cooperation of others while having no means single-handedly to obtain it. In respect of such things, the work of destruction is quick, easy, and exhilarating, the work of creation slow, laborious, and dull." Think about the construction of the World Trade Center decades in the making. If you were to have watched the whole creation, the whole construction of the World Trade Center, I highly doubt there would have been any moment where you would have been slack-jawed. It all would have come together so slowly. Brick by brick, beam by beam. Nothing to make you gasp. From the point that ground is broken to the time the finishing touches are put on the top story. Nothing that's going to blow you away. That's what creation is like. That's what making something that lasts involves. Of course, bringing the trade center down invoked awe. Horror, of course. Sadness, of course, but awe. Slack-jawed, open-mouthed, irrational awe. And it all happened in a moment. Maybe that's what made it so exciting. I mean exciting in a perverse way, of course. Terrifying. Nothing terrifying about the construction of it. Nothing that would linger in your spirit about the construction of it. But, easy, quick, exhilarating. That's always the lure of destruction. That's always the lure of violence. It's a feeling of sublimity. Now, what this means is that if you have a view of society if you have a view of movement into the future, which involves an orientation towards the past, you have to be willing for politics to be dull. You have to see the excitement offered by the purely speculative and promise-crammed future-oriented utopian... And say, it doesn't work. So all the promises are for nothing. And that's hard to do. Because the utopian is not saying that there's something spectacular in front of us now, but that there could be. So, the conservative is one whose enjoyment of sublimity is not taken from politics. The conservative does not need politics to be thrilling. Of course, the reason for this is obvious. He doesn't need politics to be thrilling. Because he has religion.